But if you want a big life that actually matches you, you have to ask yourself, what are the priorities? Like, what is it that I'm going for? Am I going for a, a life that has diamonds on the walls? Or am I going for a life that actually matches my heart and my soul and that looks like me? Hello and welcome back to the Go Off Sis podcast. We are back for another episode and today we need to talk about money, honey. Yes, we are talking money moves, paper chasing, all of it, being a boss, everything that comes with it. And we're going to get into some things none of us even knew about being a boss. At a time when a lot of people's financial situations are uncertain and our community is feeling the impact. We wanted to have an open conversation about money because we haven't and because we all deserve to be in charge of our future now more than ever. We also get our life with the one and only Tracy Ellis Ross, who gives us a sermon on knowing your worth. So buckle up because we are bossing up today, baby. Let's get into it. So each episode, we start off with a a different question. So today, in the spirit of being a boss, we are going to share our biggest boss purchase. My name is Danielle Cadet. I am the managing editor of Refinery29 Unbothered. My biggest boss purchase, I went to Paris with my mother in 2016, and I bought a YSL bag. Like I bought it <laughs> cash on the table. Mm. Like, I mean, I paid with a credit card, but the, you know, I backed it up with the cash. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, this is something I deserve. It's frivolous. It's not something I need. It's just something I want. Today I am joined by my fantastic sisters, Chelsea and Kathleen. Kathleen, let's start with you and tell us your big boss purchase. I'm Kathleen Newman-Bermang, the senior writer at Refinery29 Canada, and my biggest boss purchase, mine is materialistic, but also practical, it's my couch. Come on, decor. I love some decor. It's not a money green leather sofa, but it might as well be to me (laughs) Yes, because I love it. Every time I sit on that couch, I'm like, I bought this by myself. It was expensive as F. (laughs) Decor purchases are big deals. They're big. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the most money I've spent on anything. <laughs> that's real. Chelsea Sanders, sister, welcome. Please tell us your big boss purchase. Hi, guys. I'm Chelsea Sanders, the VP of Communications at Refinery29. And I think my biggest boss purchase, you know what? I bought a vacation for myself last Ooh. November. And I... I did it. I ended up in Maui, Oprah's Island. Yes. Okay. You better um, flex, girl. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Your girl was out here. Yes. Amen. Oh, I love that. And of course, it's great that we can start off with the fact that we've been privileged and blessed enough to make these kinds of purchases. But we all have a complicated relationship with money. And I know the three of us have talked about, as Black women, seeing Black women in our lives and how. They dealt with money. And Kathleen, I want to start with you. You talked to us about your mother and how your mother handled money. I mean, some of my earliest memories of my mom is her saying, have your own money. Do not rely Mm. on a man for money. Mm. And my parents are now divorced. And in hindsight, I'm like, oh, it's just because of whatever was going on in her relationship. But it was also about independence. I saw her work her whole life. I remember watching my mom get her own office for the first time. Mm. And to me, money and working hard were always hand in hand. And so my mom's advice, do not rely on a boyfriend or a husband or a man for money, was always about hard work and independence. And as a woman, that was just ingrained in me. Yeah, I agree. You know, my mom was the breadwinner in our household and worked so incredibly hard. You know, I've watched my mom go through school while having four children, and I watched her open up her own practice. I watched her make so many decisions to make sure that we had so many things. Mm. Um, And she never was outright like, don't depend on a man. 
But like, I definitely watched my mother just do her own thing. And even though my parents were married for a large part of my childhood, it was never like a thing where I like ever saw my mother ask my father for money or even consult my father about money, which is a thing that I now have to navigate in my marriage, which is very different. And on the flip side, my grandmother is a very traditional, old school Haitian woman who was raised to understand that the man was the head of the household. And so she always told me straight up, this is a direct quote, make believe you don't know anything about money. (laughs) Straight up. She legit says, make believe you don't know nothing about money and just let them be the governor. But in fact, you are. You are the one that's making those decisions. You are the one that's running the household and therefore you are understanding the money moves. I saw my mom kind of take on money in her own way and kind of lead out of necessity, really. But then I also saw my grandmother kind of take a back seat to my grandfather. So I grew up with these two different ideals of like what, how women should deal with money. Chelsea, what about you? Similarly with you, Kathleen and Danielle, I came from a household where um, independence and money were very synonymous. My dad was a lawyer, and so he was able to support the family, um, but my mom was always busy and working and always had her own independent revenue stream. So the question of working was never asked, right? I think also something that I've really definitely inherited is this idea of working for yourself. Amen. A lot of what I saw was making it for yourself. That's the energy that I always approached being a boss to. Like, we'll figure it out. Uh, You know, I may not know what it is, but we're always going to be working. We're always going to be independent and we're always going to be motivated to make that next move. Mm. Yes. And I think it says so much, again, culturally about where we come from and who we are. And so I want to actually talk about what the conversations were about money at home, because I, I have to be honest, I didn't have a lot of conversations about money. And I'm very creative. I'm not a scientist, y'all. I'm a creator. <laughs> and like math was always actually like a really challenging subject for me. So I, I, I'm not naturally inclined to have conversations about money. What was that like for y'all? I mean, it's so interesting because my mom would say, have your own money. Mm-hmm. Don't depend on a man. But we right. didn't talk mm-hmm. about retirement savings, taxes, like financial literacy conversations were not happening in my house. Mm. It was just have yours, work hard, get money, keep it. Um, so I've always been super insecure about it. Like Same. Same. Talking, talking about taxes will make me sweat. It's not where my comfort zone is at all. That's super real. And I know I'm not a numbers person, but I am going to drop some numbers just because it's important for us to have some stats here. Only 14% of African-Americans work with financial professionals. And that number even goes further down when you're speaking about Black women specifically. And so, you know, financial education is definitely, there's a gap there. Chelsea, I want you to jump in here too. Were you talking about money when you were growing up? Not at all. One of the things you said about financial education, the thing in my household was education, right? Yes. That was the priority always. Whatever you had to do to get that education, that's what we were going to do. And I think that idea of like achieve, achieve, achieve was Mm. so ingrained in us. But the fact that those achievements take money (laughs) wasn't, you know what I mean? Oh my God, that's the realest thing ever. So I think that was the confusion. Like I have so much confidence now because I've seen it in my money making abilities, but Mm. zero Mm. confidence in my money management abilities. Yes. You just dropped the word because you're getting to the crux of this is something I think black women feel especially is success out of necessity. Right. Like I didn't have a choice. And so for me watching my mom, it was like she's doing well and she's doing as much as she's doing because there's no other option. Like she cannot rely on my father. She cannot rely on anybody. She's got four children and she wants them to have a certain kind of life. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And she's an immigrant. Okay. I'm first generation Mm -hmm. American. So it wasn't even so much about the money as much as it was just, I had to do well because there's no other option, you know, but now becoming an adult, as I think of things like loans and bills and all of those things, you know, research has shown that black women have more trouble getting loans in comparison to white women. And 75% of black women 
worry about even having enough money to pay their bills. Because Mm -hmm. there's another aspect to this is that your family is relying on you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about that being breadwinners in the family unit. Mm -hmm. There's a, just an aspect of necessity that comes with that. And there's an aspect of like community need that comes with having to be successful financially. Yes. And I think if I have it, you have it, we all have it mm-hmm. is something that's like sort of in our DNA, right? Yes. Yes. It's because if, if I'm winning, all of you are winning or else no one's winning. Exactly. But on the flip side, we're not talking about it the right way. That's real. And I think because we are succeeding out of necessity, we don't think about it until it's too late. Yes. Like even Danielle, when you were rattling off those stats, I was getting mad because we also know that we make 60 cents on the dollar. Thank you. We also <laughs> make less than our white woman counterparts. We also are the primary breadwinners, mm. the majority of us in our yes. houses. And so with all of those stats together, it's like, yeah, yes. maybe our moms forgot to sit down and have a financial literacy course with us. Right. In addition to everything all- they were already doing. Exactly. It's frustrating, but it's also kind of beautiful this sense of community that we have and that was instilled in me exactly and that and that is something that's so intrinsic culturally within the black community right it's just like if we all ain't doing well ain't nobody doing well mm-hmm. and and Chelsea you said something when we were preparing for this episode that really stuck with me was that like even the guilt you carry for success yeah. which made me stop and say like yo are white folks out here feeling bad about making <laughs> as much money as they like? Truly, is that a thing? I just don't feel like white people are out here feeling bad. Like, you know, Chelsea, I want you to expand on that because that I, I really thought that was powerful when we were talking about this. Yeah, I still do feel that guilt of like, well, if I'm doing well, then that means that I'm doing almost too well mm. <laughs> because that's mm. not the way that I have been, I guess, programmed to think, yes. right? That there is something wrong with me succeeding, yes. that I don't deserve the success that I've gotten, mm. even though I've worked mm. so hard for it, like we all have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's something that we've been programmed to think that you don't deserve this. And exactly. you should say thank you for what you get and be quiet and be happy you're even in the room and that we're even having this conversation. There it is. So it was, it's hard for me and it still is, but um, I also just have to recognize then what I do have, I'm grateful for, and what I can share, I, I always will. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is an aspect of our community that is just, is so real. And just being a member of an immigrant community, another thing that I'm really aware of is the fact that like, you know, there are a lot of people who came here who, didn't have green cards or couldn't Mm -hmm. open bank accounts or don't trust the bank, you know, and that's not even just an immigrant thing. That's a black people thing. But Haitian people have a thing called a susu. And Mm -hmm. basically what it is, is you get a group of people together and everybody pools a certain amount of money. Let's say you've got 10 people who put in $2,000 each over the course of 10 months. And so over that course of 10 months, every individual is getting a hand. So you get $20,000. And that's honestly the way that people have sustained themselves and taken care of themselves as a community. But Chelsea, you touched on something that I really, I I want us to get into. And it is this programming of like, just be okay with what you're getting. This idea Mm -hmm. of like, you shouldn't even be here. And I want to talk about knowing your worth Mm -hmm. and how money is associated with that. You know, and like really finding your inner boss and dealing with imposter syndrome. There are so many times where I struggle with like, should I be at this table and should I be making what I make? And and I think a lot of that also comes with this really difficult narrative that I've been told as a black woman. Kathleen, you asked a, a really important question of like, do we share salaries? And, you know, how that impacts how we negotiate. Can you get into that a little bit? Well, I just noticed that I have only shared salary information with my few fellow Black colleagues. Mm. And we were never on the same level, but we, you know, we're looking out for each other, going back to the community that we talk about. So that's the only time that I have ever talked about money with colleagues and actually shared what we are making. Mm. And so not having that confidence, especially in a money conversation, I am so bad at them. I've walked into every 
meeting or job interview where I've had to talk about salary, sweaty and (laughs) not feeling good about it, stuttering, like just not myself. Mm. I will say that I, I have gotten better at it having these conversations and knowing that, yeah, I have worth. Because the, the one time that I did stand my ground and say, this is what I'm worth, is when I knew the company needed a Black woman to do this job. And I was the only one they knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, w- I want to I jump in there because, yes, I think we all need to add tax to just the fact of being a Black woman. Because there is power in our perspective and we should get paid for it. Okay. I cannot tell you how many times I have realized there's nobody else at this table who has my perspective. I'm going to keep you from losing money. Mm. I'm going to keep you from losing fans, from losing an audience because my perspective is that powerful and you don't have anybody else. Even if you have another black woman at this table, we are not monolithic. So what Mm -hmm. I'm bringing to the table is different and you can go get a white woman off the street that doesn't know what I know, or you could just pay me for what I know. Mm -hmm. Yes, that part. And I think that is a thing that we really need to lean into as black women. I don't even feel slightly bad about adding tax to the fact that I am a black woman and it is what it is. Chelsea, I want you to jump in here because I know you have a really strong perspective about this. Yeah. And I think Kathleen, I used to feel the exact same way and I used to feel nervous and self-conscious and like, why am I even doing this? And one time at my old um, PR agency, I went in to ask for a raise and she could tell I was nervous. And so she was like, okay, can you just stop for a second? Take a breath. I'm just going to tell you something. The number of mediocre men who come, come in here <laughs> asking Say me it. for more money for the mediocre job that they do, you have nothing to worry about here. And for every, you know, seven mediocre men, there's one nervous woman who walks mm. into my office asking mm. for money. Mm. And that just changed the way that I work. That was a big moment for me just to realize, oh, okay, I should be in this room. Yes. And once you realize that value and you know it, it opens up so much for you because as you go up in leadership and you are in different rooms, you also start to realize, real talk, no one knows what they're doing. (laughs) No one. (laughs) No one. So if you... If you just stand up there, fully yes. confident, yes. and you have the knowledge <laughs> and the expertise to back it up, Amen. you are two miles Amen. ahead. Man, If we all even had like the slight confidence of a mediocre white man, it would change yes. everything. Because there are mediocre white men all over the world demanding, and this is what y'all have to understand, demanding, not mm. politely asking, mm. not even providing evidence or receipts, none of it. We have to understand that if I even come... You know, if I even come to the table with the, with the perspective and the confidence and the research and the due diligence that we do as black women, because we've been taught that we've got to be twice as better and we've got to work twice as hard, then ain't nothing wrong with, de- with demanding twice as more. You saying that just gave me chills because the twice as hard conversation is 100% something that we all heard our whole lives. Yes. But when are we ever told to ask for twice as much? Exactly. Exactly. We're never told. And the thing about it that's so crazy is the stakes are twice as high. You know, I can speak from my own personal experiences. Like, I work that much harder because I think about who's affected by any of my shortcomings, right? If I Mm -hmm. screw up, that means the next Black woman won't get this opportunity. And being a Black boss, an actual manager is a difficult thing to do. Chelsea, I know you feel me on this one. It's really hard and it's a it's a balance because I think you feel that anxiety and that pressure in the same way that you feel that workload twice as much, right? Yes. There is this personal like, well, I got to make sure my sisters are good. But you also, you know, we, we have this code switching. Like you said, Danielle, sometimes you're Malcolm and sometimes you're Martin. Amen. And I think we we have to really strike that balance really delicately because if we ask for too much, we are aggressive. Yes. Mm -hmm. If we try to say something's not right or we're angry. Yes. So I think we 
just are hyper aware of the way that we're portrayed as bosses and the way that we carry ourselves as bosses for our teams. Yes. As a community, we're always thinking about that next step. Yes. Who's coming behind me? Yes. I love that you brought that up because generational wealth is real and it is a thing that we have to discuss in the Black community and, and we have been set up to fail. I can speak from just a media perspective. Media is an expensive industry to get into and you don't make a lot of money. But you had to move to a city like New York City or Los Angeles in order to work at like a well-respected company. Thankfully, my grandparents lived in Brooklyn and so I was able to go sleep in their living room and not have to pay rent. It's just not the same. We don't have generational wealth set up for us. Kathleen, I want you to jump in here. I mean, I, I slept on my aunt's couch when I was interning at, yes. M- at MTV in New York. I recognize the privilege of that, of even having uh, an aunt's couch to sleep on, yes. that my parents were able to help me through school. But that generational wealth, I think, is something that we also don't talk about when it comes to Black millennials. We are making less money than our parents. Millennial burnout is a real thing. We are hitting walls even the like little bit of wealth that our upper middle class parents could pass on to us Mm. is going to potentially stop with us. Mm. And I don't think that's a conversation we're having enough. Yeah. I want to make a transition to talk about money and relationships, whether that's romantic relationships, familial relationships, all of that. And how we take what we know about money, even something as simple as asking to go to get fast food and your mama asking you if you got McDonald's money to now, (laughs) because now my mama asking me to have a baby. I'm asking her, does she have a baby money? Okay. (laughs) You got a money for a baby. All right. Matter of fact, you got, you got, you got surrogate money because you're really keeping it super real. So I want to, I want to talk about how our relationships with money shifts when you then have to do that in a relationship. Kathleen, you're, you're getting ready to get married. How has that been in your relationship? How do you discuss money? Well, for the first five years, we didn't. I've been in a relationship for eight years. And I... Five years! (laughs) Truly, he didn't even know how much I made. Wow. I just wouldn't talk about it. I was so terrified. And I think it was me misinterpreting, you know, my mom's advice. It was also Mm -hmm. like, oh, this man's going to take my money. I was not comfortable. Like he would start talking about money and I would like be like, let's have sex or or something. Like just (laughs) change the subject. (laughs) I could not, I couldn't do it. And, And I think that I got more comfortable with it as it got more serious. But I'm still, we still have separate accounts and Mm. he's talking about like when we get married, maybe we should think of joining and that still makes me nervous. I think there might be like a racial aspect. Yes. Yes. And I should, we should let the audience know that you are in a, in a racial relationship. Yes. My partner is white. Part of it, I think is a guilt and a fear Mm. um, that I am relying on something that symbolizes an institution that has mm. has never really given us what we deserve. And mm. so now I'm going to then hitch my wagon to that same thing. And so when I really think about it, I think, yes, maybe part of me not wanting to join all of this stuff I've worked so hard for, I've worked in spite of this system that told me I couldn't to get all of this stuff and then I'm going to go give it back to a white dude, mm. you know? And Y'all, there is fire in the booth oh, today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, there's trust. And I have been the breadwinner at times in our relationship. At times he has been. I think I've, I trust and believe that we are our own partnership and that it goes beyond some of those fears. But they're there and they're real. Mm. Oh my gosh. This is why I I told y'all strap in for this episode. (laughs) I love that. And for me, I will jump into things when I feel confident about them. And financial literacy is just not, I don't feel super confident there. And I, I will say, you know, as a person who's now seven or so months into my marriage, uh, my, husband is, I I trust him endlessly. um, And he is very mathematically inclined. I married the real Dwayne Wayne. He went to Hampton University. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) 
and, and he will he will admit to me that he doesn't know everything, but he he is less afraid to learn than I am. And so there are a lot of, you know, we're having all these conversations about, you know, having the same account and, and all these things. And it's, I think the difficulty for me, again, going back full circle, is that I didn't see my parents have a financial partnership. So I don't necessarily know how to do that with my partner. My mother made the decisions because she was more equipped to do so. So now I'm learning how to be in a partnership. We're learning how to do that together because it is, it's scary, you know, especially when you have your own baggage and your own trauma from your own parents' relationship. So I'm learning every day and, you know, it is something where I've said to myself, you know, like, let me take some classes and let me learn a little bit more just so I have a better understanding, just because I really do want to get more confident in that area. How's that going? Ciao. <laughs> can, I, can I maybe get a Sparknotes version? If y'all got any good classes out there, go ahead and add us, okay? Which brings me to our next and final segment, the Don't At Me segment. And our longtime listeners are familiar with Don't At Me. But if you are not familiar with Don't At Me, let me tell you something about it. This segment is meant to tie a bow on our very intense discussion today. And we're to ultimately come to a decision and establish a connection. The catch is y'all can't at us. Okay. You can't say nothing to us. And this week's Don't At Me is brought to you courtesy of our sister, Kathleen. Take it away, Kathleen. Okay. Talking about money used to make me nervous. But for a lot of us Black women, talking about money is our biggest problem. We need to be open about our money insecurities and about our salaries. As open as we are about discussing how Molly messed up on last night's Insecure. Right now, when the economy is a mess and our financial security is so uncertain, it is even more imperative that we take our mother's advice about independence and apply it to how we think about our individual wealth, whatever that may be. Being a boss is about being informed. Let's arm ourselves with knowledge and with the sense of community that we grew up with. We can't hold our communities on our backs, but we can walk through these hardships hand in hand. Money is about freedom. It's about building a future. So when you walk into a room, know you deserve to be there and that you deserve the future you've envisioned. Black women, we deserve to be paid for what we bring to every table. So the next time you are negotiating for your worth, throw away your nerves. Picture us all in that room with you, standing behind you, rooting for you. I'm going to try and take my own advice, do the same, and hopefully be able to hold my head up high and say with confidence, pay me what you owe me. Don't at me. Season two of the Go Off This podcast was made possible by Target, your summertime style destination. Sunkissed skin, bold fashion, undeniable confidence, summer is still happening. And this season, Target makes it easy for you to celebrate your melanin, soak up some sun, and bring your best summer style to life, whether you're on your balcony or in your backyard. Their inclusive range of summer wardrobe essentials are here to glow you up no matter what. Head over to Target.com or the Target app to check out all the new looks, because wherever you are, you know we're keeping that same summer energy. The phenomenal, iconic Tracy Ellis Ross is here with us today for this episode, and I am over the moon. Tracy Ellis Ross continues to skillfully navigate the entertainment industry as an award-winning actress, producer, and creative, okay? Like, come on. She is also the star of the new film, The High Note, where she plays superstar singer Grace Davis. If that's not enough, Ross also serves as the CEO and founder of Black Girl Magic Company Pattern, a hair care brand she created for the curly, coily, and tight textured masses. Tracy Ellis Ross, thank you so much for being here with us today. We are so excited. I'm so glad to be here to sit with you three beautiful Black women. This is awesome. Tracy, this episode, we're talking about money moves, boss moves, and you are the boss. I don't even know where to start. I mean, if we're talking about this movie, the high note that shows how much of a boss you are, you have an incredible acting career. 
you have pattern. How do you juggle all of these responsibilities and yet still glow and have healthy hair and skin and drink some water? How do you do it? First of all, when you're saying, and I think to myself, am I a boss? Um, and, and I also think like there's so many of us bosses around. I remember saying that there's so many of us that are the leads in our lives, that are handling our lives, that are thriving, that are glowing, that are beaming with our inner light. But how do I? Everything that you listed on there are things that I am so passionate about, that I really love, that make my heart sing, that um, came from genuine places of my desire, my heart's desire um, from somewhere deep in my soul of wanting to share something. And I feel like if I were to come up with a theme that is my mission, that is the thread through everything that I do, it is to continue to share the beauty, power, and importance of Black women, to support and be a part of us gaining equity in our lives, owning our own narratives, and shining as brightly as we each intend and want to do so that we can feel a sense of freedom in our own beingness, not in the context of anybody else, but in the context of our own selves. It's really about me continuing to own that as a community, you know, like that this is not mine. Every win for you is a win for me. Every win for me is a win for you, that we are all taking up the space that we should have always been able to take up. You touched on exactly what we talked about is as a community that it is really intrinsic within the Black community that we lift each other up and that if only one of us is doing well, we're not all doing well. And that is so, so true. I think also particularly in this pandemic, um, one of the things that has become so evident and continues to be evident is the inequities that exist in the world, they've been here, you know, but we are only as safe as our most vulnerable neighbor. That's always been the case, but it's easy to forget when you're in the safety of your own Mm -hmm. gilded cage or whatever that might be. We all have so much we all are dealing with and have so much on our plates. And also at the same time, with so much that happens, so much pain, we realize that Black girl magic isn't a term for no reason. First of all, we've been magic forever across the globe. So that's not new. Thank God there's now a term for it. We can own that and claim that, but that's been the case forever. But lifting each other up is a necessity Mm. because we are not only invisible in so many places, but we are being hunted and pulled apart. And if we don't, where else? I have, I have goosebumps. I am like dying. This is seriously, this is so, I mean, and I, and I want to dig on something that you said just in terms of the characters that you've been able to play and how you have really demonstrated so many different facets of, of, of black women, whether that's Joan or, you know, whether that's Grace Davis in this movie. One thing that we wanted to talk about was just kind of knowing your worth and that just energy that comes with like, listening to your gut and knowing your worth. Can you tell us, has there ever been a time for you personally that you went with your gut and you just kind of knew your worth despite what the industry was telling you? You know, it's interesting. It's, a, it's like a daily momentary thing grabbing one's worth. And for me um, included, Obama just recently said in his commencement remarks, he said, you know, none of, success doesn't happen alone. And I don't think worth does either. I personally have consciously curated a really extraordinary professional team around me Mm. that supports me and mirrors back my worth um, in moments when I can't see it, but also personally my friends and my family that I am vulnerable enough with to say, like, I feel like garbage today or I feel unworthy, or I feel terrified, or I feel like I can't do this, or I feel like I did it wrong. And remembering that you are not a mistake because you make a mistake. Mistakes are actually part of the growth process. Um, I've had to remind myself that what other people think of me is none of my business. And sometimes even what I think of myself is none of my business. And so I have people around me that get to mirror back a better version of me than sometimes I am able to see. So I don't think that for me, worth 
is a solid sort of thing that I can hold on to. It's very porous, as is my identity and my soul. You are dropping a word. I'm like over here, like, where's my notebook? Yes. Like, what? <laughs> Write it down. This conversation is lovely. I feel like I'm having a cocktail with some friends. <laughs> I mean, everything you just said there, yes, you were preaching, but it brings us back to when you were talking about success and worth. I thought of this scene in the high note and Grace is sitting in a room with mostly male white executives and they're advising her in her career. I'm sure that was a specific choice. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you tell Dakota Johnson's character that it's different for you as a black woman to succeed in this industry. You know, we've got all this black girl magic. We've got all this confidence, but it is hard navigating these industries as black women. So can you talk about how much you identified it with that scene and, and going through navigating those worlds? First of all, a little bit about the movie. The thing that first drew me to it was the overall message and the story of this um, Grace Davis and Maggie within this, her assistant, um, that this was a story that is so identifiable for me personally and universally of there's no matter the age, the stage, the phase of your life, no matter the circumstances, no matter what lane people are telling you to stay in, which is really somebody saying, stay small, don't be you, don't be big. It is never too late to pursue your dreams and to be who you know you are. It's never too late. And this was a story about two women who were not against each other. And then it comes to that point for Grace Davis, my character, who's this international icon who has had decades of hits. And it's a room of men telling this powerful woman who's probably the reason that all of those people are sitting around that table that even have chairs to sit around at that table. She's the reason. She's the voice they all got there on. And now they're the ones telling her how she should proceed in her life and that how she should proceed is putting her dreams on the back burner and staying small. And so, so many times in my career, in my life, have I faced those moments in different ways, Um, both in me coming face to face with racism, sexism, ageism, all of those things. I have come to understand and because of the people around me that that says more about them and more about the system than about me. And even though my soul, my personality, my ego gets hurt and wounded and frustrated and confused and it makes me want to feel small and play it safe that I constantly choose the bigger place and I get the support I need to make those choices. It happened constantly with pattern. It was constant. It took me 10 years to get that company off the ground. Mm-hmm. So many disappointments. But each time I was able to focus my vision more to get clear about why and what I wanted to be doing. But I will be very clear that the hurt that happens and the doubt that comes up is real. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I like to try and do is really give myself space to have those feelings, grieve what I've lost, grieve the hurt. Then once I'm through the feelings, then revisit and reactivate the dream. As a Black woman, I feel like we are constantly underestimated. We are constantly asked to take on um, everyone else's story. Um, And I think so many people, I feel really blessed that I have taken the risk of vulnerability to show up for friends and let them show up for me, to allow even my family to see me so they can show up for me. So that in the moments, like to be able to take the risk to say, this is important to me, I need your support, or I am terrified and I need your support. And I think that's the reason to go back and circle back to what we were talking about in the beginning, that the community of who we are and how we support each other is so important when we live in a world that doesn't do that. Are those, you know, what you just mentioned, how do you overcome that imposter syndrome? You know, I do my homework. I think things through. I'm prepared. I mean, let me just talk specifics. You know, I sang for this movie. Uh-huh. I just yeah. dropped my first single. Should I say that again? <laughs> Come on, go ahead and flex. Uh, I just dropped my first single. <laughs> We need to drop a bomb. <laughs> Seriously. I'm like, drop the mic, throw the bomb. <laughs> 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 uh, 
you, that was my biggest dream and became my biggest fear. Mm. You know, the longer you wait to let a fire out, to let a passion come forward, the scarier it gets. And um, I was so afraid. (laughs) I'm one of those people that like, I run and jump off the cliff. And then once I'm like down on the other side, I'm like, what the f***? (laughs) I'm like, "Ah!" (laughs) I just went off the cliff. I have an idea and I'm like, go. <laughs> and then I get down on the other side and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm screaming and crying and I'm like, I can't get out of bed. And the shame becomes so loud. And, you know, have you guys ever heard the acronym of what shame stands for? Should have already mastered everything. Oh. <laughs> Should we leave that there for a minute? I feel attacked. Yeah, truly. <laughs> Yeah, shame never liberated anybody. And shame shame cannot live in the light. Mm. But we all have it. And shame and loneliness are good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not the nicest friends. Right. I don't always offer them a drink. You know what I mean? I'm like, you don't need to stay. I know you showed up. I'm glad you got here. I'm going to be kind. But you don't need to stay. (laughs) So the, the reality of it is you shouldn't have already mastered everything. There's no way you're going to grow and there's no way you're going to get big if you think you know it all. You got to take risks. And we live in this world where I don't know why, but it's like you know, someone tries something and they're like, she sucked. I'm like, dude, give her a chance. How are you going to learn something new? Do you think we all learned how to walk by just getting up and walking? No. When, when, you're, when a baby falls, you're like, oh, so she stood up. Look. Oh, I mean, my sister Chutney just sent a picture. I've never been more excited. Everly sat up. She sat up for the first time. We're all applauding. The little baby sat up. She got down two seconds later, but she sat up. Nobody told her. She wasn't leaning on nothing. Somehow, you know, as individuals, we grow up, you sit up and people are like, well, I would have sat up differently. I don't know about you. I mean, but why did she wear that dress when she sat up? If she had only worn that other shirt, she didn't even have on the right lipstick. Her eyelashes were falling off. Dude. I'm learning how to stand up tall. Like, give me a minute, you know? So um, with the singing, I was terrified. And I walked through it. And the freedom that's on the other side is indescribable to me. And the truth is that what I discovered is a couple of things. I got specific about what exactly I was afraid of. I was afraid of being compared. I was afraid of being judged. And I'll be honest, I was afraid that my voice wouldn't sound, wouldn't have the soul it needed to have, mm. you know? And then I was like, but what do you think soul is? My sister was like, I said, but I don't sound like Jennifer Hudson. She said, do you know how weird it would be if you opened your mouth and Jennifer <laughs> Hudson's voice came out? That shit would be bananas. <laughs> like, no one wants that. <laughs> That's ridiculous for me to try. What if you came over here and you were like, I'm just going to walk around like Tracy. That's why I tell people all the time. My goal is not to make you want to be me. It's to make you, inspire you to be you. Mm. That's mm-hmm. what you do better than anybody else. Yes. And so I started to realize like, who am I trying to sound like? Am I going to be compared to my mom? Maybe, but that's not the point. I can never be my mom and I don't want to be. She's done her really well. I get to be me. Mm. And my job in the singing was to get out of my way Mm. and bring exactly what I bring to my acting work and everywhere in my life. Tell the truth. It sounds like I'm telling the truth. And I had the support to get there and I cried and I I had real moments of imposter syndrome of, oh my God, you are so stupid. (laughs) What have you done? And that day in the studio, I remember the first day with Rodney Jerkins, who was incredible. I remember he was like, trust, you're going to have to trust me. And I was like, <laughs> okay, sure. Because <laughs> I have a ton of trust just sitting in a little luggage right here. I'm waiting to pull out for you. <laughs> Come on now, you got to earn it. Um, but he did. And I remember the first time, you know, I was in the booth and he played me back to me and I was like, shut up. And he said, this is you. And I was like, you didn't put sauce on it? Did you put sauce on it? Don't put ketchup and shit on my voice right now. I want to know if that's what my voice sounds like. Is that my voice? <laughs> this is totally you. I did nothing to this. And I was like, nah. 
Put me back in the booth. <laughs> Turn my bass up. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> what you were saying just about the decisions that you've made and, and choosing to be your truest self. And one thing I want to ask you is, have you ever made a choice to maybe forgo an opportunity to make more money or, um, you know, maybe it was like, this is going to make me more money, but it's not a reflection of who I am. And so I'm going to walk away from this. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I spent so many years in my life and in my career, um, turning crappy things into something awesome to taking what I could get and making it the best of what it could be. I remember after I won the Golden Globe, my manager said, you're going to need to dream new dreams. And I was like, oh, oh, we're really? Because it's been this, I've had the same dreams for so many years. Like, I, 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 how do you let go of them? And, and, you know, how do you change that? And, and so I, the, the shift only occurred in that I got to a place where I said to myself, now, instead of taking what I can get, I need to go for what I want. And that's a really interesting transition, which brings up a lot of anxiety and fear, because that means you're going to be saying no to things that used to feel like the dream. Mm. Very difficult. Wow. You can also apply to dating or anywhere. You know, you grow. Like when that ex comes back and he's finally the person that you wanted him to be, but those are no longer the things you want. Mm. Because you grew past that. And it's not a comment on the growth that that human being has had and made, but it's just, that's not where I'm at anymore, you know? And it's scary to do that. I find it incredibly anxiety provoking um, to continue to say yes to what I want and who I am and not necessarily who I was just because it was something I used to want. But I have, and I accept and I'm very aware of the fact that I come from abundance. I have worked for everything that I have, except for the things I've stolen from my mom, which is just, you know. <laughs> Bear right here was in our house when I was young. The pillows right here, she said I couldn't take and I took anyway. <laughs> but the roof over my head and, and my car, and these are all things that I have worked very hard for. I come from an abundance of love, but I do know that, you know, you can't just say no to things when you need the money. I'm, I, I, there, there's nothing wrong with that. And I've done that in my life. I think it's incredibly important. It's part of taking care of yourself, you know, but in the places where you can, when you can choose. Um, and I, so I have not let money guide me. Those kinds of choices have never led me towards the, the life that I want. But if you want a big life that actually matches you, you have to ask yourself, what are the priorities? Like, what is it that I'm going for? Am I going for a, a life that has diamonds on the walls? Or am I going for a life that actually matches my heart and my soul? And that looks like me. And at 47, I can say like, I, I have a life that looks like mine, looks like me. It's a reflection of me. And our world often tells us, you know, how to get what you want. Mm. How mm. to get what you want instead of supporting us in being who we are. We touched on fashion, but it's just, it makes my heart sing. It used to be armor for me, and now it is one of my forms of creative expression. Uh, it is how I wear my insides on my outside. It changes all the time. You know, different parts of my identity kind of come forward. I love what you say about fashion being armor. How did that transition happen? Oh, I don't know mm. how that happened or mm. when that happened. I think the more comfortable I started to get in my skin, but still, you know, when I feel like I'm going into a scary environment, it's really important to me. And then often, almost all the time, I get on the red carpet and about, I don't know, two minutes after I land on the carpet, I break into a sweat and I just think everyone's laughing at me all the time. No like, one's ever never, laughing never, at you. Never, I'm telling you, I'm literally, when I wore that pink Valentino couture dress, oh, oh. no, 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 listen to me. I have never, I'm not joking you, this is the way people greeted me. Oh my, oh my God, that is a, that is a dress. So by the like third time someone said that to me, I was like, oh my God. Like, oh, do I look like I'm wearing a duvet? Like a comforter? Like what's? Yeah, call on me on the back for the folks at home because we're always gagging. Like we're always, yeah, always dying. Always, always. Now, now I feel 
feel more pressure. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, it is honestly just. It's beautiful. There's intention behind it. Always. There's there's there's, by the way, there really is. And it feels like you do it for us. So yes. thank you. And I want to shift a little bit because you mentioned the fashions and you mentioned pattern. You know, you mentioned that the, your first sparkling was 10 years in the making and that, that whole process. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's coming up, what you're excited by? Pattern has been a really extraordinary journey for me. Um, it started as a personal desire of like, I don't, there's no products out there that support me. And I also don't see images out there that support me in loving my authentic self and my authentic hair and knowing how beautiful it is, despite what the world thinks. Somebody posted recently, she said black girl porn and she had her beautiful coils. She just kept going like this. And I was like, yes. Because we're so used to, I grew up on easy breezy and bouncing and behaving hair. And I'm like, the amount of heat I had put on my hair to make it easy breezy and apparently beautiful when it started beautiful, but it just wasn't supported. So it started as a personal thing. And I know for most of us, I could chronicle my journey of self-acceptance through my journey with my hair. Like you could just tell the story of my hair and you will hear the story of me learning to love myself and accept myself. So as Girlfriends finished and I was out in the world and you know, there was no social media during Girlfriends. So I didn't have that connection to hear people's voices and feedback, but I started to realize that it wasn't just Mm. me that wasn't seeing herself. It wasn't just me that couldn't find products. Masses of people across the globe that were looking for products that actually activated our curls, supported our hair without toxic products, hydrated, moisturized, created clumping, a brush that wouldn't break in two when you were combing through your hair, you know, like a clip that actually could hold your hair, like all those things. And, or that, you know, everyone's like this conditioner and the shampoo, the same size. I'm like, girl, stop. Like, how many times am I going to have to refill the conditioner and go buy another Mm. one? And why on the back does it say use a dime size? What are you talking about? (laughs) For who? Like, for who? Speaking to my soul. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, for curlies and coilies, size matters. Right. (laughs) I want my hair to feel clean and cleansed and my scalp to get cleansed, but without stripping every bit of moisture that I've worked so hard to get into my hair. Yes. So I developed pattern to also um, create a, a business that was shared power that put us around our own table so that we were constantly supporting each other. A percentage of all sales always go to supporting organizations that support people of color and women. And so phase one has been fantastic. Phase two will be launching early this summer. Um, And I'm really excited about it. It's all, um, you know, an extension of the things that exist. So juicy and joyful hair, but now perhaps we get to play a little bit more. I love that. And I think... One of the things you said about the industry or the world at large not being as far ahead when it comes to black hair care and understanding that black girl hair porn is it. And we've seen stylists who don't know how to style people of color. Is that something that Pattern is answering for? Have you seen that shift over the past couple of years? Well, I think a lot of things have shifted. I do think you see so many more uh, black hairstylists or um, stylists that are not white that actually know how to mm. address and, and work with black hair. Um, it's, you know, it, they, we all learn things. You can learn how to love and appreciate something that you don't necessarily have on your head. It's, it's not that hard. We've been doing it our entire lives. So right. we right. can all figure that out and you just have to inform yourself, take the time to learn something new and also take the time to listen to those whose hair you're doing. Um, My point initially was to offer products that would allow you to wear your hair naturally and support it. But I also, like most people who wear their hair naturally or most black women, we were forced to learn how to do our own hair Mm -hmm. because there wasn't support out there. There weren't products. So we were chemists in our own bathrooms. We were our own best stylist and all of that. I mean, I had to do my hair for so many years. Like I was like, you can touch my hair. You burn Mm -mm. my hair last time. Get away. Right. Right. So I think it's shifting. Um, I also think there's a a new appreciation and understanding both by the industry, the beauty industry of our importance and the beauty of our hair, Mm -hmm. but also by ourselves within our community of Mm -hmm. our beauty. 
you know, we, we come by the, the not knowing, honestly, because we haven't seen it. Like, you know, it's, it's not always easy to know something that you don't have any examples of. I want to talk about just the fact that I feel like you occupy for us as an audience. Like, there's just so much you bring to us, making us laugh, giving us time to just see ourselves and acknowledge ourselves and what we're going through we always talk about how black women aren't monolithic and you occupy so many spaces. And I want, I kind of want to go back to what you were saying about people making you feel small or kind of condensing you to this place. I find that in watching you and in being a fan of you, I see so much of who we are as black women. You're so honest when you're sad or when you're enraged about something and so, I, you know, I want to talk about the fact that you, you really do genuinely share your fullest self with us at all times. And in, and in turn, for people who might not know Black women, you bring so much of who we are to just a, like the general masses. And it's incredible. How do you find the strength and the comfort and the ability to just show up and take up space as your fullest self, whether it's on set or on a, on a red carpet or anywhere. And you've just provided such a great example of, of doing that. And if there's any advice that you could share with our listeners on, on how to do that. How do you expect me to talk after you tell <laughs> that? I feel like I'm crying. I mean, I am crying. Well, I, you really made me emotional. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, very special to hear yourself mirrored back um, and to feel like who, oh, it makes me want to cry, that who you want to be is actually being received. And that the point of, um, you know, I, I spent so many years trying to be somebody other than I was, um, thinking that it was, you know, that who I was wasn't good enough, was wrong, that I was too much, or, I mean, I taught myself to smile so my top lip would go away. And now I'm like, but my lips are, they're not so big. <laughs> I'm like, what was I thinking? What was the problem? I was clearly around the wrong people. <laughs> so I spent so many years trying to be somebody else and, I, and, um, and being afraid to be who I was. You know, it takes, I spent so much time learning myself, knowing myself, then, then accepting myself and then hopefully loving myself. And then the courage to actually be yourself, to allow yourself to become that person is no joke. It's not easy. I'm 47 years old and there's been days and moments of chewing on ground glass, of trying to sit with the discomfort whether it's being faced with my own self or whatever and having to realize that, you know, I'm not, every, I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea and it's not my job to be everybody's cup of tea. I am a person in the midst of a swirl of so many people. I'm a people among people. I'm a worker among workers. Um, and I'm also incredibly unique the same way each of you are. And so it is selfish um, and it is also not selfish, but it's just that the only way I know how to live at this point that makes me feel good is to be myself. And even when I'm being myself, sometimes, you know, I run off that cliff and, <laughs> and I push send on post and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> that was the one. That was the one, guys. It's over. They're all leaving and they don't want to see you anymore. <laughs> But I refuse to let a public version of myself or a, a picture make me feel bad about who I am. I won't do it. I won't retouch my face to the point that then when I look in the mirror, it makes me upset. I'm not doing it, you know? Um, and there's things about my face, my armpits, my stuff where I'm like, what the God, is my nose getting bigger? <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw the other day when I tried to color my hair and then I put in story um, I said my five head I, I saw that like, I have a five head so I, I appreciated that. that shout out to all the black like, girls with five girl, heads who said four this, this is a five right yes. here amazing this uh, y'all, we y'all can't see us, but we have cried, we have laughed. <laughs> Tracy was throwing pillows in her house. Y'all don't understand. <laughs> Rewind and listen to this from the beginning again. I cannot thank you enough for showing up for Black women all the time. 
Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being here always. This was amazing. The Go Offices podcast is a Refinery29 original. It's produced by Chelsea Sanders, Rashad Isaac, and myself, Danielle Cadet. It's edited by Hanger Studios. My co-hosts today were Chelsea Sanders and Kathleen Newman-Bramay. Like what you heard and want some more? Head over to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts to catch up on all episodes. And don't forget to drop a review or leave a comment to let us know what you think. You can also find us where it all started, on Instagram at R29Unbothered. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, it's okay to go off, sis. <laughs>